Indeed, uh, uh, I am looking forward uh, to this morning's message as we conclude chapter 12 in the book of John. And uh, to kind of uh, uh, just remind us or refresh us of of where we've been, uh, we have covered uh, 12 in... 12 in a few verses, and hope we don't lose power. It'll, it'll be a little dark in here. Everybody got your, your phones with you with the flashlights? Okay, that'll be interesting. We did that one time before in our old building, if you recall. So, um, but, um, but as we come to, to chapter 12, chapter 12 contains a lot of stuff. There's a lot in chapter 12, and frankly, it was a little overwhelming as I was thinking about preaching on this this morning, as I'll be endeavoring to cover 30 verses. So um, I would appreciate your grace this morning as I try to unpack all of this. Um, There was a Greek poet who was from Sparta, who lived before uh, Jesus was born. His name was uh, Tertius. And he said this once, he said that the man who risks his life in battle has the best chance in saving it. The one who flees to save it is more likely to lose it. Does that sound eerily familiar? It's because Jesus said something similar in all four of the Gospels. In three of the Gospels, he said, for who would ever, who, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And here in John chapter 12, uh, Jesus communicates the same concept in a slightly different way. Uh, But the point is the same, and it's a point we need to take to heart, and that is if we want to save our life, we have to die. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning in need of your Holy Spirit to teach us, um, to reveal to us things that we do not understand and Lord, it seems paradoxical to us, counterintuitive to us to lose our life in order to gain it, to die in order to live. But Lord, that's what you teach us in this passage. So I pray that um, you would help us be attentive. And Father, that we would take what we learned this morning, that we would apply it to our lives, that we would not be merely hearers of your word, but that we would be doers of it as well. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, interestingly enough, John has taken 11 and a half chapters to cover all but one week of Jesus' three-year ministry. I mean... That's, that's quite a feat. He doesn't include everything. Uh, he himself says this would be a much larger book if he did that. But he takes 11 and a half chapters to cover all but one week. And it was a ministry that was focused primarily on the Jews and to some degree the Samaritans. And here in, in, in John uh, 12, what we find out is in almost as many chapters as he has already covered, he's going to take almost as many to cover just the last six days of Jesus's ministry. So the first 11 and a half, three years, the next 10 or so, 
six days. So there's a lot here. Uh, just uh, last week at our life group leaders meeting, it just it you know dawned on me. Here we are. We're we've we've passed Palm Sunday, and and we're going to be in this book until November. So there's a lot more stuff to come. And in John 12, 23, Jesus announces here that his hour has come. It is time for him now to complete his mission. And it's time for all those who hear his voice to decide whether or not they will come to the light or whether they will remain in darkness. Make no mistake about it. Our response to Jesus determines our eternal destiny. So as I studied the text this morning, um, I, I came up with no less than 10 headings or subjects. But rather than preaching a 10-point sermon or 10 sermons this morning, which I'm sure you all will appreciate, I'm just going to kind of work my way through the text, and hopefully you'll see these different headings or subjects uh, that come up. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to John chapter 12. We're going to start reading there in verse 20. It says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, one of the major themes here in the book of John is that Jesus is the Savior of the world, not just the, the Jewish people. And all throughout his book so far, we have caught a glimpse of that in things that are said about Jesus or things that Jesus himself has said. For instance, Jesus, John the Baptist told us, is the Lamb of God who what? takes away the sins of the world. We learn in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world. And the Samaritans understood that Jesus was the Savior of the world. And then in John 6, we're told that he gives life to the world. And in John 8, Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. And so verse 20 really kind of marks a pivot in, in Jesus' ministry. It's no longer just about the Jews or even the Samaritans, but it's about the entire world. And the word that's translated Greeks here uh, does not necessarily mean that these people were from Greece. Rather, it's a reflection of the fact that these were Gentiles. And so, again, with them coming to Jesus, which is interesting in itself to think about, they came to Jerusalem to worship at the Passover. So these were Gentile God-fearers. And somehow they heard about Jesus. And they wanted to see Jesus. But they didn't just want to get a glimpse of Jesus from a distance. They wanted to talk with him. And so they approached Philip. And you wonder, why did he approach Philip? Well, Philip has a Greek name. And so maybe they thought that's an in. That's a commonality that we have. And Philip goes to Andrew, and then they both go and speak to Jesus. And Jesus answered them. 
In verse 23, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In John chapter 2, Jesus said, My hour has not yet come. In John 7, Jesus again said, My time has not yet come. And then two times in chapter 7, verse 30, and chapter 8, verse 20, we're told that his hour had not yet come. But now, in chapter 12, Jesus says, My hour has come. It has finally come. And of course, if you're curious, you want to know for what. My hour for what? Now, see, we, we have the benefit of hindsight. But put yourself there in the moment. Jesus often spoke in riddles. He, or at least in ways that appeared to be like riddles. And they did not understand. And so Jesus says, my hour has come. And in verse 23, Jesus answers. And he says, it is time for the Son of Man to be glorified. So even that answer is somewhat nebulous, a little, little bit, you know, uh, esoteric. It's, it's, it's out there. What, what do you mean it's time for him to be glorified? What exactly does that mean? The word doxadzo that is used to translate this to, to be glorified means to become positively acknowledged, recognized, or esteemed for one's character, nature, or attributes. It means to praise and to honor and to exalt, to greatly esteem, to be gloriously great. So that's what Jesus is saying is about to happen. The time has come for this to happen, for him to be acknowledged and recognized and esteemed, to be made gloriously great. Now, we know that Jesus was glorified after his resurrection and after his ascension to the Father, but the context here indicates that Jesus was talking about his death. He uses an agricultural metaphor to describe it. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, dying a gruesome death on the cross um, seems like a strange way to be glorified. But is it really? When you think about life today, um, turning on the news, reading stories about heroes who have given their lives in, in battle, in defense of this country or trying to, to save someone else's life. I, I, I think here that by virtue of Jesus' character and his obedience to the Father and his willingness to suffer and die for sinners, I think it makes sense. Because it, uh, uh, just like a hero who dies in battle and then is um, posthumously honored for his sacrifice... We do it too. 
And here the picture is that God the Father is going to glorify Jesus in his death. He would receive glory from the Father. And just like a seed has to die to bring forth life, so too Jesus' death will bring forth fruit for, of, of eternal life for many, many people. John later in the book of Revelation says this. He says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, all Christ followers have life in them. Because Christ is in them, and in him was life. And we know that the life was the light of men. But to bear fruit in life, we must die. We must die to sin. We must die to self. We must be willing to follow Jesus we must be willing to lay down our lives for others. We need to allow God to plant us where he wills. The only way to be a fruitful Christian is to follow in Jesus' footsteps. And it's not easy. I think that's why Jesus at one point told his hearers, consider the cost. Consider the cost of following me because there is a cost. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You follow me, you may have nowhere to lay your head. They persecuted me, they will persecute you. They killed me, they may very well kill you. Do you really want to follow me? You see, when life is easy, when, when there are no problems, when we aren't being persecuted, it's easy to be a follower of Jesus. But wait till the heat gets turned up and you start to feel the pressure I admire our brothers and sisters around the world who are faithful to Christ in the midst of persecution and great suffering. I know nothing of that. And sometimes I wonder if, if, I, if my faith would even remain if I was in their shoes. Jesus goes on to say in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And this makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, if, if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to be where he is. We're going to serve, to serve him. We have to be with him. We have to be near. I like what Justin uh, Buzzard, um, who wrote a study for um, together uh, um, oh, for the Gospel Coalition, I like what he says here about this passage. He says, Jesus invites us to love and trust him more than we love and trust ourselves. For true life, eternal life, is found when we let go of our life and trust God to take care of us and direct us. The issue is whom we declare as the God of our life. 
If we continue to operate as God of our own life, we will eventually lose our life. For we were never meant to run our own lives, and we are incapable of doing so. But if we take ourselves off the throne and declare that God truly is sovereign over our life and the universe, we will discover the true and eternal life that God means for us to enjoy. I didn't feel like I could add anything else to that. But how we respond to Jesus will determine our eternal destiny. Jesus makes it clear that those who have surrendered their lives to him will be saved. And those who have disbelieved will be lost. They will remain in darkness. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, have we surrendered our lives to him? Have we surrendered our plans, our desires, our possessions, our bodies, our time, our will to him. In other words, have we surrendered our very lives? Or are we holding back? Are we giving God a part of us? Lord, you can have this. That's no skin off my back. But you can't have this. I, I want to maintain control of this part of my life. You can't have that. It's not how it works, folks. Jesus Christ is Lord. And we need to recognize him as such. Jesus goes on to say in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven came saying, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there heard it, said that it had thundered. Another said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. See, John wants us to know that Jesus is God. He's made that very clear. But he also wants us to know that he is truly human. He's the infinite God-man. And John doesn't hold back in sharing with us parts of his humanity. And verse 27 reveals it to us. The word troubled here means to be characterized with great mental anguish or distress. It suggests being afflicted or being in danger. Jesus knew what was coming. And he responded in his humanness the same way you and I would have responded. His soul was troubled. But it was troubled not because he questioned the will of the Father, but because he knew where the will of the Father was leading him. And that was to the cross. Now, verse 27 ought to be strangely comforting. I know it is for me because it tells me that Jesus knows how I feel. He knows what it's like to be troubled and frustrated and hurt. I mean, just think about that. Jesus knows what it's like to be frustrated. 
And it's usually because of people. He knows what it's like to be hurt and betrayed and rejected and hated. He knows what it feels like to be upset and overwhelmed and disturbed. And the writer of Hebrews makes this abundantly clear when he says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Since he is beset with weaknesses himself, he's able to be gentle with us. And that's comforting. Because I don't worship a God and you don't worship a God who doesn't know what we feel He's acquainted with all sorts of pain and suffering so that we can go to him and know that we can receive help in the time of need. And Jesus immediately prays, Father, glorify thy name. What a prayer. And God the Father answered him immediately, and assured him that he had glorified it in the past, and he will glorify it here in the future. And of course, he's speaking about Christ's crucifixion. He's speaking about the resurrection and the ascension. Now, the crowd, interestingly enough, they couldn't make out the voice. They, they thought it thundered. Some of them thought Jesus was speaking to an angel. So let me ask you, how then could it be for their benefit? If they couldn't understand, how was it that Jesus said, this was not for me, this is for you, this voice came for you? And I really wrestled with this for a while, and then I I, I felt like maybe I've got an answer to, to this. I think it was for their benefit because the Father's message fortified Jesus for what lay ahead. To hear his Father say, Son, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. What a shot in the arm to hear the Father's words. And I think Jesus, in his humanness, needed to hear the Father say these things They strengthened his resolve to go to the cross. Despite the suffering that lay ahead, Jesus chose to glorify his father's name and to ensure the salvation of all who would look to him, including us. So in that regard, this voice was for them. Because if Jesus had never gone to the cross, none of us would be saved. We would still be in our sin. It's kind of reminiscent of when Jesus was in the garden and he prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Verse four, um, or excuse me, in these four verses also reveal to us, I think, the power and the importance of encouragement and praise you know, if, if Jesus needed encouragement, um, how much more so do we? You know, a couple weeks ago when we did our life group leaders meeting, there was an exercise that we did, and I remember sharing with the group th- uh, something that just 
stood out to me that I hadn't really thought about in, in my Christian life uh, a whole heck of a lot. But it asked the question, you know, who are like the three, you know, top people in your life that have, you know, helped you in your walk with Christ? You know, and I, so I, I wrote out these names and then it asked the question, why? Something to that effect. And there was a theme, a common theme amongst them. And it was simply this, that each of them believed in me. Each of them saw something in me that I did not see in myself. They encouraged me to keep pursuing Christ and to use my gifts for God's glory. I wouldn't be here today without them in my life. I needed that encouragement. I needed that praise. And, and I think the same would be true for you. We all need encouragement. We all need to be strengthened. And again, if Jesus needed it, how much more so do we need to hear it? Oh, and we need to give it too. Don't underestimate the power of encouragement, of going to somebody and sharing with them and telling, maybe they know it, maybe they don't, but just the fact that you're willing to share with somebody something about them that encourages them and fortifies them and strengthens them and inspires them goes a long way. Let's look at verse 31. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowds answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Well, the ruler of this world is clearly Satan. And Jesus is saying that through his death, Satan will be defeated. When I am lifted up from the earth is a reference to how Jesus is going to die. If you remember, we, we looked at that in John chapter 3 and John chapter 8, that Jesus would be lifted up on a cross. And so that is why... They responded the way that they did. They were confused. See, Daniel spoke of him as uh, the son of man as having an everlasting dominion. So how can you have an everlasting dominion and be dead? Well, see, they didn't understand that not only was the son of man, was Jesus the son of man, they didn't understand that, that he was also the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. So... There, there needs to be death before there can be resurrection, before there can be everlasting dominion. And Jesus says that I will, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Now, he's not saying that all people will be saved, okay? All sometimes does not mean all in the way that we think that it means, you know, when it says all Jerusalem went out to meet, it didn't mean every single person in the city of Jerusalem came out, but a great many of them did. And here he's not saying that all people will be saved or even that he will draw all people to himself in some way. Rather, he will call to himself Jews and Gentiles, men and women, 
He is saying that when he is lifted up on the cross, his death will bring salvation to men and women from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. He paid the ultimate price for you and for me. He died in our place. He died a death that we deserved for our sin and our rebellion. And although I know you guys have heard that time and time again, we can't afford to let it become old news. We can't grow dull in hearing it, saying, I hear the same thing every week. Well, yeah, we need to hear it every week. We must never lose sight of the terrible cost of our salvation. We must never forget the depths of our depravity and the vileness of our sin. Don't ever gloss over the horrid death of Christ, the horror that was the cross. Don't ever let the gospel become old news. Verse 35. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid themselves from them. Now, in these verses, Jesus returns to the motif of light. If you remember back in John chapter 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In telling them to walk in the light, what Jesus is really saying is he's telling them to repent. He's telling them to believe in him and to follow him while they still can. His public ministry is almost over. He's only going to be with them a little while longer. Time is running out and they need to make a choice. Will they choose to walk in the light or will they choose to remain in darkness? This is a timeless message and it's the message that I'm preaching here this morning. How we respond to Jesus will determine our eternal destiny. Isaiah says in chapter 55, verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. It's assuming that God will not always be found. That he will not always be near in the sense that he will allow himself to be found. We are to do that while we can. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So if you're here this morning and you have not yet surrendered your life to Christ, today is your day. Now is the acceptable time. Just tell him what he already knows. That you are a sinner in need of a savior. And that today you're willing to step over the line and say, Lord Jesus, I surrender my life to you. 
I want you to be king in this kingdom. I want you to be the Lord of my life. And I want to receive the gift of eternal life. He will honor that prayer. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Now the key word in the rest of this chapter is the word believe. It's been used already. It's going to be used seven more times in the remaining verses. Look with me, if you will, at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. In this section of scripture, Jesus is addressing spiritual blindness the blindness of the people. And he quotes from Isaiah 53 as well as Isaiah 6 in this passage. Jesus' rejection, therefore, was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And in so doing, John once again shows us that Jesus truly was who he claimed to be, that he was the Son of God, that he is the Son of Man, that he is the Messiah. Now, in these verses, we see the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. On one hand, the people should have believed and were guilty of unbelief. On the other hand, God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they could not believe. So they could not believe. In other words, they would not believe and they could not believe. Folks, this is deep stuff. Um, And I really wish I had more time to unpack it. I'll say a few things here, but I encourage you, study the scriptures for yourselves. Get in a life group, join a D group, Discuss these things amongst amongst each other. Pray. Ask God to give you wisdom in it. It will suffice to say that when a person continually rejects the truth, when they continually reject the gospel and they refuse to repent, their heart gets hard. It becomes impenetrable. And their conscience becomes seared as with a branding iron. And John is telling us that in response to their unbelief, God confirmed them in their choice. With a judicial blindness or a judicial hardening, God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts in response to defiant unbelief and ensured that they could not believe. 
there's so much I could say about this, but I'm going to let D.A. Carson kind of sum it all up in, in, in the smallest possible paragraph. This is what he says. God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate cursing morally neutral or even morally pure beings, but as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and to be what they themselves have chosen. That's heavy. But God reserves that right. If we will not believe, God will seal us in our unbelief and he will use that unbelief to accomplish something else. Their, their rejection of Christ led to our inclusion. Do you understand that? We have been grafted into the kingdom because of their unbelief. In Romans 11, the Apostle Paul says, their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. I told you, there's a lot there. I hope you'll go home. I hope you'll study. I hope you'll read and ask questions and, and feel free. I'll be glad to, to chat with you as well. There's one more thing I want you to see here in verse 41. John says that Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Some of your translations will say that Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. They, they insert the word Jesus there to make clear who the him is referring to. And it's referring to Christ. But think about it for a moment. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory 700 years before he was born? Oh, that's an amazing thing. Huh, interesting. And then, to make it even more interesting, see, see, what John is doing, John is quoting from Isaiah chapter 6. The vision that Isaiah had of the Lord high and lifted up with his train filling the temple with the angels, the seraphs there proclaiming holy, holy, holy. Trevor read earlier from that passage when, when Isaiah said, woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. And then the angel comes and touches his tongue and his guilt has been taken away. Then the Lord speaks to him. Almighty Jehovah speaks to him. And he says to him, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? He says, here am I. Send me. And then God tells him exactly what to say. And it's recorded here in John as well. That you're to go to these people. And though they will, they will keep on hearing, they won't understand, they'll see, they won't perceive, but, but, but render their hearts dull. Make them blind so that they cannot believe. And you go, wow. Well, it becomes a bigger wow when you fast forward over to Acts chapter 28. Because in Acts chapter 28, the apostle Paul references Isaiah 6 too. 
quotes the same verses and says, rightly did the Holy Spirit say. You get where I'm going? In the Old Testament, in Isaiah, you have God the Father, God Almighty speaking. In John, John tells us that Isaiah spoke and saw Jesus back in Isaiah chapter 6. And Paul in Acts chapter 28 says, no, it was the Holy Spirit who spoke. So folks, in Isaiah 6, John 12, Acts 28, you have one of the best defenses of the Trinity in the Bible. See, remember those chapters. Because when the Jehovah Witnesses come knocking on your door, they're prepared for John 1.1. They're prepared for the standard Christian responses to defend the deity of Christ. They are not prepared for what I just gave you. Show them that. Look at it yourself. Be encouraged in the faith yourself when you see both God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit all spoken of in the same passage. Anyway, no charge for that. Let's, uh, let's look at uh, verse 42 and 43. <coughs> Excuse me. Because that, this goes to the root of their unbelief. And it gives us also a reason why some uh, who did believe did not confess Jesus publicly. Verse 42. There we go. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So, there you have it. They preferred the glory of man over the glory from God. And John adds that many believed in Jesus, but they did not confess him publicly. What kind of faith is that? Yet it's the kind of faith that many people have today. At worst, it is no faith at all. At best, it's a deficient faith. These are people who believe in Jesus at some level, but whose faith does not go deep enough to foster transformation. They're more concerned about having the approval of others than having the approval of God. They care more about what others think and say than what God thinks and says. Listen, living for the glory of men uh, will make you a slave of men. If you live for the applause of men, you will constantly live your life trying to please others. And then you'll live in fear of losing their approval. It's a trap. Praise God, we don't have to earn God's love and approval. We don't have to earn his acceptance. We already have it because of what Christ has done for us. And it's unconditional. It's not a, you know, Paul, I'll love you if you do this or do that. It's I love you, period. 
And there's tremendous freedom in that. Because if God loves us, period, if it's unconditional, then it's not based on our performance. Therefore, I can't lose it. And you can't lose it. We don't have to live in fear. You know, it is tremendously liberating to live to please only one person in life. And that's God. We don't have to live to please other people. John concludes this chapter with a contrast. Verse 44 says, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus here is contrasting those who believe with those who don't. And he's also contrasting their respective destinies. If we respond in belief, we will not be judged. If we respond in unbelief, well, God's word will judge us one day. And we will remain in darkness we will be sentenced to spend an eternity apart from God and apart from all that is good in a place called hell. No wonder Jesus said, while you have the light, walk with the light. Walk in the light. So how we respond to Jesus clearly will determine our eternal destinies. Salvation is only possible through the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. And only those who believe will be saved. But I want to remind you, it's not merely intellectual assent. It's not just simply saying, well, I believe this about Jesus and this about Jesus and this about Jesus. It means that you have fully trusted and embraced him as your Lord and Savior and that your life is not your own. The life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God. Those who reject Christ will remain in darkness. They will face certain judgment. So the question is, which person are you? If you're unsure, remember, now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you belong to Christ this morning, I just want to challenge you, trust him more fully. Be bold in your confession of Christ. Don't shrink back. Remember, you only have one person to please. His approval 
means more than the approval of everyone else in your life. May God help us die to self, die to sin, so that we might live for him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word to us. And uh, Lord, there's just so much in this chapter, um, so much more that could have been said and could have spanned several weeks. But Father, I pray that what was shared this morning, that you will take it, that you will use it, that you will cause us to marvel at your great love for us and that you would cause us to believe and to believe more deeply and trust you more fully. And Lord, that we would be bold witnesses of you and what you have done in our life so that others around us might see you in all your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.